in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. We're looking at verses 9 to 21, so you can find that either in book form or app form. And as you do, let me pray for us, then we'll start walking through this great text. Father, we do, uh, as Matt said, uh, thank you for our moms. I thank you for my mom. I thank you for a mom who loved you, loved the word, loved the church, modeled a Christ-likeness for me. I thank you for her. Thank you that she is still with me, with our family, and pray for a blessing on her life today. I also thank you for the moms that are here, the moms that love you, the moms that are raising their kids, sometimes in very difficult situations. Um, So I thank you for them. I thank you for them and the blessing that they are to us, the blessing that they are to this ministry as they partner, as they partner with one another, other moms, but the body of Christ in general to raise up kids uh, in the manner and in a way that is pleasing to you, that seeks to see them come to be followers of Jesus. So bless them today. And as well, Father, we do pray for those where this day is a hard day for they're missing a mom, missing a mom for whatever reason but they're missing a mom. And so we pray for comfort and courage and strength for them. For the women here that want to be moms, but that has not yet taken place, we just pray for them. Pray that they would be able to uh, come to much peace and recognizing that you are a sovereign God and are in charge of their lives. And so I pray that this would be a day where they just feel a very palpable presence uh, by your spirit on them. So bless them as well, we pray. Also pray for this text that we're walking through. There's many, many, many things in it. So I pray that we wouldn't get um, distracted in all the details and miss the bigger picture. So help me as I teach it. Help all of us as listeners so that we would hear from you and be furthered along in our journey with you as we leave. Strengthened by your word through your spirit as we scatter into this city that so desperately needs you. And I pray for all of these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. When I intro this section of our study of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12 to 16, our fifth and final section, a section that we're calling the practice, what I said in that intro, if you remember back a couple of Sundays ago, is that beginning in chapter 12 all the way through chapter 16 is Paul's expected response for those who have received the mercies of God. That's chapter 12 verses one and two. Highlighting that for us, as I said two weeks ago, is that chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, includes more instructions in it than any other chapter in the entire New Testament. That is no more displayed than in our text today, 14 verses that include 30 instructions, no less. 30 instructions in 14 verses, which is a lot. That is plenty of instructions, but be encouraged because I do believe we can whittle down those 30 instructions and fit them under two categories. Two categories, number one, the first category being how we as followers of Jesus who have received the mercies of God in Jesus are to function within the body of Christ. How are we to relate to one another in other words? That's category number one. Category number two is how are we to function as people who have received the mercies of God with those outside of the church, most specifically those who are enemies of us, either individually or corporately? How do we respond? What's our call in this city in which we live when we, re- when we uh, receive resistance uh, from those outside of us? Those are the two categories. 
If you look at verse 12, just put your eyes down, excuse me, in verse 9. In verse 9, Paul begins his instructions. Here's instruction number one with the instruction, let love be genuine. You see it there? That actually serves as a heading. It's really a general instruction. And what we have hereafter or thereafter in verse 9, halfway through verse 9, through the rest of our text, is a layout or a description of what genuine love looks like. Because if I were to say to you, let your love be genuine, how you define that and how I think of it may be entirely different from one another. And I think Paul presumes that. And so what he does is he takes this general heading, this general instruction, let love be genuine, and he describes it for us, which leads to those two categories. Here is what genuine love looks like when it's played out in the body of Christ, us. Local expression here called Westside, many local expressions that make up the worldwide church of Christ. How does it look like? What does genuine love look like there, here? And secondly, what does genuine love look like outside? So let's take them one by one, simply asking the question, what does genuine love look like, number one, for us inside the church? Well, the first thing that we discover is that it is to be pure. It's a pure love. If you look in the second part of verse 9, same chapter, it is to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. That word abhor is only used here in the New Testament, only one time. It is used right here in verse 9. It's a word that speaks of or calls us to vehemently hate something. It's an internal disposition and hatred toward that which is evil. As we will see, as we go on in this text, it's not to be an evil expressed or lived out toward the evildoer, but it's an inside general disposition against that which is contrary to the beauty and wonder of God in his ways. That we hate that which is contrary to God in his ways. We hate that that leads to death and destruction, and why would we not? So it's an abhorring, it's, it's, an, it's an internal hatred to that which stands in contrary, contrary disposition to God. It's a disposition coming in the recognition that evil at its essence stands opposed to God for after all, evil is what led Jesus to the cross and necessitated his death on it. So we are to abhor it, we are to be we are to have that disposition against evil. And secondly, we are to hold fast to that which is good. Holding fast, that expression, is only used elsewhere in the New Testament as it pertains to sexual relationships. It's the same idea and wording as cleaving. When a husband leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, that's what it speaks of here. It's to be glued to to be intimate with and speaks of grasping and uniting. We are to have an intimacy with that which is good. And we are to have a disposition of hatred to that which is contrary to the beauty of God. It's a pure love, which begs the question, the obvious question to all of us, do we? Do we? Do we hate things like pride and selfishness and revenge and so on? For example... And do we cling to humility, generosity, and selflessness, for example? 
Or do we just roll our eyes at those who cling to the latter and excuse those who practice the former? Here's a second thing that genuine love looks like within the body of Christ, and that is it's brotherly. Take a look at verse 10. Paul says exactly that for us when he writes, love one another with brotherly affection. That word translated love one another, philostorgos, is only used here in the entire New Testament as well. It only comes up here. It speaks of a tender affection. This is a a phileo. You probably heard that in the word that is used here. This is a phileo type love, brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. It's a love that is affectionate, but here it's used in connection and reserved only and enjoyed by those who are part of the same family. That's the context and connection and the usage here. It's a love that is to be enjoyed by all who are part of the family of God. And how can we call ourselves a part of the same family? Well, because quite simply, we all have the same father. Jesus says as much when he declares, stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. As we will see later, we're not to reserve our love only for those inside of the body of Christ, yet at the same time, there is a type of love that is to be enjoyed by those who share a relationship with the Father in heaven and share it because they're co-heirs with Jesus. There's a camaraderie there. There's a relationship that is to be enjoyed and can only be enjoyed. It's this type, it's this type of love. This reality, for example, leads Paul to instruct this in Galatians 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. We're going to see the everyone a little bit later in this text. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Blood may be thicker than water, but the spirit is thicker than blood. Here's a third thing that this love is to look like within the body of Christ, and that is it's honoring and it's to be such. In verse 10, the second part of verse 10, another instruction, Paul says this, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. I love that. Outdo one another in showing honor. In the ancient world, as it continues to be uh, the case today, Honor was bestowed on another simply as connected to what another had. So you would honor someone because they had much status or wealth or position. However, in contrast, in the kingdom of God, honor is bestowed on one another because of the shared and equal worth that God has placed on each of us. We are all the same in Christ. And therefore, All of us can receive honor from the other and are to bestow it on one another. In fact, our disposition towards one another needs to be, they are greater than me and I will honor them and it comes back the other way. That's why Paul says this in Philippians 2, 3, a verse that we've looked at a couple of times over the last weeks or so, a couple of weeks or so. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Like I said, I love this instruction. There's a bit of a challenge in there. Like outdo one another. Sort of this is, if you're gonna compete with someone in the, in the church, compete in this. 
This is the challenge to us. If you feel compelled to compete with someone else, compete this way, look for ways, be aggressive in giving yourself away. It's the idea Paul gives us here. Here's another thing that describes and defines genuine love within the body of Christ, and that is it's a fervent and serving love. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Fervent or fervency means to seethe. It means to boil over. One Bible translates fervent in the spirit with be aglow with the spirit. It speaks of enthusiasm that gets expressed. So it's a, it's a burning, it's like bubbling out of us that gets expressed how? In serving one another. And ultimately in serving Jesus. As you see at the end of the verse, as you serve the Lord, how do we serve the Lord, the Lord in the body of Christ? By serving one another. We are the body of Christ, so how do you serve Christ? You serve the body of Christ. So we serve ultimately the Lord. It's also, if you look at verse 12, this genuine love, it's a persevering and prayerful love. In verse 12 we read, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Well, why is that necessary? Well, as we know on this side of heaven, there will be plenty of times where our joy won't be found in what we have and receive here and now, but in the hope of what's coming. But it's a hope that strengthens us with patience and forbearance in the midst of trials and those things around us that prove difficult. But our ability to rejoice and persevere rests on our dedication and commitment to prayer. And not just prayer for ourselves, but prayer for one another. In fact, genuine love expresses itself in prayer for one another. It's displayed that way. And therefore, rejoicing in God's promises leads to persevering through tribulation. And one advantage of tribulation is that it does propel us to pray. So genuine love within the body of Christ is a, a love that is fixed on the hope of the promise that is coming, a hope fixed on the promises that come and are coming. It helps us persevere through trials and testings, but sometimes we don't go through the trials and testings, but others do, and we need to pray for one another. We need to pray for one another. One of the beautiful things on Wednesday is when you write in your prayer request, 20 or so, 30 people come and they pray for those requests. I put the challenge out to maybe participate in that. That we serve one another and we show the genuineness of our love for one another by coming and praying for one another. And if you can't come and pray, then at least pray for others. And not just those two or three in your cluster, your family, but pray for the family of God. Pray for the wives that are going through difficulty because their husbands are antagonistic against the cross. Pray for families that are going through difficulty because of health situations or those that are broke and looking for work. Pray for the lost in this congregation who come every week. Pray for the lost in this city. Pray for the 70% who live in the city of Vancouver who live by themselves in downtown Vancouver. Pray for the 97% in this city that don't know Jesus. We need to pray. We need to pray for one another. It's also a giving love. Genuine love within the body of Christ is a giving love. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul writes there, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek 
to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. These two verses illustrate what it looks like when a life or a gospel gets a hold of a life. It's generous with its resources and generous with its blessings. That word contribute there means to have in common. Sort of the idea of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, where they had all things in common. The word hospitality means to share with strangers. The word share, or excuse me, the word seek means to pursue. So put it all together. What do we have here in the instruction? God expects, even demands, that we actively pursue opportunities to share of our homes and our resources. Actively. To seek it out. We are to be no less than conduits of God's grace. After all, all we have comes from him. As we talked about last week, this is what a transformed life looks like. In contrast, Tim Keller says this, a lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours but God's. Genuine love, as it shows itself in verse 13, relieves the needs of the saints. See that? The saints, who are the saints? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a saint. Talking about those inside the church, we are to relieve the needs of the saints, meaning those in the church, especially when it comes to things like lodging, a place to sleep, a place to grab a meal, or something in between. Some further motivation for this is seen in places like Matthew 25, where Jesus says, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 writes this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. How does that work? Have no clue. Have no clue. The writer of Hebrews suggests that hospitalities to strangers, that stranger coming may in fact be an angel. Don't know how that works, but I think it's fantastic. But not only are we to share our resources, we are to share our blessings too. See that in verse 14? What's the word bless mean, by the way? We talk about, well, bless you, bless you, bless you. It's where we get the word eulogize. When you go to a funeral and there's a eulogy, what do they do? They speak well of the person. So when it comes to blessing, we speak well of the person. It's a word that speaks of favor, obviously, but more specifically and in context, it speaks of pronouncing God's favor on the person. The exact opposite of the word bless is the word curse, which you see at the end of verse 14. Some may say, coming out of verse 14, well, this can't be referring to those inside the church because persecution doesn't come from inside the church. In fact, you, you could be right from this standpoint, from this standpoint. Persecution as it's laid out in the scriptures most often is laid out uh, with the righteous receiving persecution from the unrighteous or those standing opposed to the righteous, specifically because the righteous are resisting living in a way that is common to the culture around them. That's most often, if you're to do study on persecution, comes from that to that because of that. However, in context here, 
in context here and in spite of that definition, I do believe that this instruction relates primarily to the persecution we, we receive at times from other believers. In fact, if you're at all like me, not only is it hardest to receive, per, receive persecution from those on the same team, it's really difficult. It's almost most di- more difficult It's also most difficult, excuse me, to bless the same team in return when persecution is received. Is it not? I expect persecution from out there. It's hard when it happens here. And I am not exempt from being the bestower of persecution. Please don't hear me say that either. It's hard. It's hard to receive it. And it's hard to bless and return when you do. Of all things, verse 14 may prove most difficult and thus evidence is most of all a transformed mind and heart. This is what a transformed mind and heart looks like. It blesses in return. For it's one thing not to return evil for evil, but it's another thing altogether to pray for God's blessing and mean it. You know what I mean? mean it for the one who has persecuted us in word or deed. Jesus, the one who prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, said this to us. I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why this is really important for us is that it's nearly impossible to stay embittered when you dedicate yourself to praying for another's success and blessing. But it is a challenge. Another thing that genuine love looks like with inside the body of Christ is that it is aware. It's aware. What do I mean? Why do I say that? Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. A genuine love is the kind of love that identifies with the pleasures and the pains of those around us. Meaning that instead of being jealous or envious over what another has or has accomplished, it rejoices with them. So when something goes good on in a person's life, it doesn't automatically lead to, oh, I wish that was me. I want that. I'm jealous of that. You really can't rejoice other than through gritted teeth. So it rejoices with those whom good things are going on in their lives. It also is, instead of being indifferent or worse, gloating over another's difficulty, it weeps with them. See, the opposite of rejoicing is envy, and the opposite of weeping is gloating. Proverbs 17.5 says this, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. In other words, while the reason why this is going on in your life is because of this and mocking, 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 you're getting your just desserts or it's because of you, because of who you are and what you've done, you insult their maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Litmus test for bitterness in our lives, and I borrow this idea, just ask the question, do you, do you feel satisfaction when you hear of another's difficulty? Do you feel disappointed when you hear of their success? 
good chance there's a root of bitterness in your heart. What does genuine love look like as we continue on in this text? Well, the last thing before we make a transition to its outward expression to those outside of the church is that it's humble. It's humble. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate, associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. All I really want to point out in this verse is that part one of this verse rests on part two. When we live out part two, part one will be achieved. In other words, when we, when we, in verse 16, aren't boastful or haughty, we associate with the lowly that we don't consider ourselves wise in our own sight, the result is harmony. Harmony will be achieved. This reminds us of last week, verse 3 specifically. We should live in harmony and unity, not thinking that we are better than one another because everything that we have received comes by God's grace. Comes by God's grace. Before moving on to section two, here's the challenge that I want to present to all of us, and I'll put it in the form of a question, and that is, are we allowing our current feelings, coupled with another's actions perhaps, to excuse us from living this out? It's a good question. Are we allowing our current feelings perhaps predicated by another's actions, to excuse this or keep us from living this out. So if that's what genuine love looks like with those inside of the body of Christ, what does genuine love look like toward those not only outside of the church, but enemies of it? What does it look like? Well, here's the first thing. It's non-retaliatory. Verse 17 we read there in the first half of the verse, repay no one evil for evil. But boy, is it tempting, isn't it? And that's why the second thing that we see in verse 17 about what love looks like outside towards those outside of the church is that it's proactive, but it's proactive and it's good. Look at the second part of verse 17. We read there, read there, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Give thought literally means think about it beforehand. Not when it happens, but think about it even now. If somebody were to do something to you, what are you going to do? How are you going to react to it? In addition to that, if it does happen, think about what you can do to honor that situation, honor the person, and more importantly, even than that, display that you are truly a follower of Jesus. See, here's what we need to know about God. He does not call us to respond passively to evil. Just notice what he says in places like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. When Paul there, writing to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. See the proactive nature of this. Bless, for, the, for to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. And finally, Luke 6, 29, from the mouth of Jesus, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, 
do not withhold your tunic either. Why? Why do this? Well, number one, because it models our Lord Jesus. And the student is not greater than the teacher. It models that we truly have received the mercies of God through Jesus. And secondly, for missional reasons. To see people come to Jesus. For Paul wants the world to take note that Christians are different. That when it comes to our conduct and business practices and choices that Jesus' followers are seen as proactively honoring to all. What does genuine love look like? Number three, coming out of this text, well, in verse 18, we read there that it seeks peace. Look at verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. When it comes to the topic of peace, if you just do a word study in your Bible, just those little cross-references, you ever wonder what those little Bible Bible verses are the references on the side of your Bible on the bottom. It's called a cross-reference. Just find the word peace. Just have a good time doing a cross-reference study on the word peace. You can't overemphasize the whole topic of peace in the scriptures. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. According to James, this is what he writes, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, and a gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. The gospel, as Paul writes of it in Ephesians chapter 6, is the gospel of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. Peace Jesus leaves with us. Can't overemphasize the call of peace and the realization of peace in our lives through Jesus and how we're to extend it to others so it seeks peace. They're called to be peace seekers, peacemakers. There are two qualifications, however, when it comes to our pursuit of peace. One of them is where it is rejected by another. We get a hint of that here, that there will be times in spite of what we do to bring about peace and reconciliation, the other will, will reject it. That we come to another, we seek them out, we repent if necessary, yet the other party still wants nothing to do with us. And Paul's instruction here is be at ease. You've done as much as you can do. In as much as it is dependent upon you, live, at, live with peace and in peace with another. But there are times where our peace is rejected. Secondly, where holiness and righteousness is rejected. In other words, peace needs to be rejected if it means that peace is only attainable if God's words and ways are ignored. But the highest call is not peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, says this, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Well, what is Jesus saying? Is he bringing peace or is he not? What Jesus is saying is that there are times because of your following of him, dedication to him, your pursuit of him, that you will bring division even to those relationships in your own family. 
And that the higher calling here is holiness and the following of Jesus, not simply peace within your family or your relationships. If it means that you have to disregard the word of God, that peace isn't the highest end and goal and what we need to be striving for. There are times when peace is not to be the highest aim, but God's holiness is. Another aspect of love that is displayed and shared and lived out with those that are our enemies is that it needs to be trusting. Look at verses 19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? Let's see if we can unpack this. Um, in our, let me, I'll illustrate it. Uh, if, you, if you come to my house and steal my car, okay? If you come to my house, steal my car, you know, hey, can I borrow it? You steal it. Here's what I can't do in our society. I can't turn around and then steal yours. If I steal yours, I will get arrested. Now, if you come to my house and steal my car, here's what I can do. I can phone the cops, get the cops over, cops go out and arrest you. They bring you before what? A judge. Now, the judge can punish, may send you to jail, may give you some community service, give you some parole, but the judge is in charge. I can't take matters into my own hands. We can't do that in our society. So too in the kingdom of God. We have a judge. He's a good judge. He's a good judge. In fact, he's a perfect judge because he sees all the evidence. In fact, he sees the motivation before it gets played out, whatever gets played out. And he won't be duped by a good lawyer. You know what I mean? Or maybe a bad lawyer, however you want to look at it. He won't get duped, won't get played with, won't be bought off. He's a good judge. He sees all. So what is our call in the kingdom of God with a good and perfect judge? He sees everything. Trust him. In the same way, you can't go out and steal somebody's car because they stole it from you. So too in the kingdom of God, we cannot. We cannot take matters in our own hands. It's a call to trust. Our call is to trust. Who is our example in this? None other than Jesus himself when Peter writes of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Should be justly there, I believe, not justify. Justly. But notice again here, Westside, please don't miss this. The call to proactive behavior is seen at the beginning of verse 20. See, not only don't avenge yourselves, right? Don't, don't avenge yourselves, but to the contrary, do good in return. Instead of inflicting vengeance, it is our call and joy to return good for evil. So don't go out and steal the car. Go out and buff it. You're like, that's nuts. Yeah, it sounds like kingdom life. The 
The one who has suffered wrong should treat the one who hates him, not with concealed resentment or with a feeling of wrath, but with kindness. That's our call here. And what is the hope? Well, not that the other will suffer, but that our kindness will burn their souls. So they respond to the manifestation of kindness and grace, Jesus himself. Heaping burning coals on their heads speaks of a kindness that leads to a response of the evildoer to their evil, making one so utterly ashamed of their behavior that it propels them to Jesus. That's what it means. It's not, I'm going to be kind to you because I can't wait till God gets you. It's not it. It's not it. See, our call is to not be like Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah, called by God, man. Go to Nineveh. No. Going the other way. Second chance. Oh, please, give me a second chance. Please be gracious. Please be gracious. I know you're a God of grace. God goes, I'll extend grace. I'll give you a second chance. He goes to Nineveh, preaches the message. They repent. How does the book of Jonah end? He's ticked. He's ticked. Why? Well, I like the grace I get from you, God, but I'm utterly ticked that you extended it to someone else. We are like Jonah. Anytime we receive the grace of God for all those things that we have done, yet choose not to extend it, hoping that God will pour judgment down on them and not kindness and grace. See, our act of kindness is a missional kindness to lead them, propel them to Jesus. Here's the last thing as we begin to wrap up and what this love should look like extended to those outside of the church, and that is it's to be overcoming. We've seen this throughout. If let love be genuine serves as a bookmark on the front end or a bookend on the front end, this serves as a bookend on the back. Verse 21, where we read, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil is spoken of three places, uh, in three places in this text. In verse 9, we are told to abhor evil. In verse 17, where we are instructed to not repay evil with evil. And here in verse 21, where we are instructed not to be overcome with evil, but overcome it with good instead. And I want you to note that again. It's not enough to just not participate in evil. It's not enough. It's not our call. Our call as Christians is not simply to live lives where we don't do evil. But to be proactive against it with manifestations of goodness. There are sins of omission and there are sins of commission. And if you know the good that you do not do, however, that is sin. So it's not enough just to huddle out in wherever land and gather your peeps around you and not do anything bad. We are to be proactive with goodness. If let your love be genuine, like I said, serves as a bookmark on the front, then again, I remind you that this serves as a bookmark on the back. What does a transformed life look like? It looks like a life where love is genuine and it's extended to all where evil is overcome with good. This is the victorious life. 
This is another example of a life that is undergoing transformation from one degree to the next. This is what it looks like. Everything from chapter 12 on flows out of verses one and two. This is a victorious life. But, and here's what you need to hear as I close. This victory and this type of life cannot be attained by human effort. It can't, it's impossible. But only by faith. A life lived in the view of God's past mercies, but also a belief and a trust that mercies will continue to be extended to you. So I close with some questions. Anyone in the church you're not loving with a tender, with a tender affection? Maybe you've transferred onto someone in the church a hurt that you received from someone else. That happens a lot. You've been hurt by people in your past and you come into a context like this and you smell even the smallest thing in someone else and you transfer that hate onto them. Happens a lot. Have you transferred that past onto someone else? Not giving them any benefit of the doubt. Perhaps you're not sharing your resources and extending hospitality, not seeking it out. Perhaps you're not practicing evil necessarily, but you're not extending good either. As I said, there are sins of commission and sins of omission. Perhaps right now with someone you've decided to serve as judge, jury, and executioner. You've taken matters into your own hands. And perhaps you're not rejoicing with those who are rejoicing and weeping with those who weep, but instead you make it all about yourself. Good questions. My prayer as I pray in a moment going into our time of response that if the Spirit is tugging and speaking and asking through his word that we respond in ways that he has for us. Maybe it's a dedication or commitment going forward that you're gonna meet with someone. Maybe you're gonna lay something aside. A reaching out, maybe it's a seeking to share that which you have, whatever it is. My prayer will be that the Spirit of God during this time of response speaks to you and that we, by the grace that he imparts to us and in us, by his Spirit, that we respond and say yes, yes. So let me pray for us, then we'll go into a time of response. Please join me. Father, I love your word. Um, and as I have prayed many times over the years, sometimes it feels like a cold glass of water on a hot day, and sometimes it feels like a hammer to the forehead. Yet both are necessary and good at times to get our attention, also to show, the joy, show us the joy that we have in it and through it. And I do pray, as I said, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd rest heavy on this time of response. I've asked some questions. There are more, more that I didn't ask that certainly could be asked in light of this text. I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen us, help us to step forward in those ways that you want for us, maybe running from something, maybe running to something. Maybe it's a conversation, maybe it's a commitment, maybe it's an act of repentance, whatever it is. I just pray that this would be sweet time. 
I also am very cognizant of the fact that there are people here who have been hurt in very, very deep and significant ways. And so I don't want to be trite in the instruction. I don't think that Paul, in writing this, was being trite. Yet at the same time, we need to move toward that. Maybe it's just one step today towards that. Maybe it's just an open confession where we come before you like David did in the Psalms many, many times, just an open confession saying, I am really hurting. I'm wondering why, why, why. So I pray if that can take place today, if that's the step necessary, I pray that it would. If there needs to be a seeking out of help and and the comfort that comes by the fellowship in this, I pray that that would take place too. So, Father, help us in this time. Holy Spirit, rest heavy on this time. And I pray that this would be pleasing time to you. For your glory's sake and our joy and strength, I pray. In Jesus' great name, amen. Would you rise, please, Westside, as we go into a time of response?